this Pride, everyone's coming through for the Trevor Project on YouTube Shorts. Join us! Create a short showing how you're stepping up for Pride using the hashtag YouTubePrideChallenge. Come through for Pride on YouTube Shorts. Visit YouTube.com backslash Pride. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Associate Editor Greg Smith. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about The Beach That Makes You Old, Old Beach. Uh, (laughs) The new film from M. Night Shyamalan, Old, opened this past weekend. We are going to dig into spoilers about The Beach That Makes You Old. So if you haven't seen Old yet, then tune out and come back, and then as we finish talking about old, we're going to start talking about M. Night Shyamalan's filmography as a whole and start going through his films, uh, starting with his earliest and then working our way up to the present. So uh, just to kick things off, uh, Greg, you're our guest today. What, what did you think about old? I had the most fun watching old. Uh, my full disclosure would be that I am a Shyamalan fan Uh, sort of leaning toward apologist with some of his stuff. I think this movie is like beautifully shot and made Mm -hmm. and crafted. I think it has some of his gnarliest scares and like tension building moments of kind of like pure icky suspense. I don't know how it got a PG 13. Uh, Some of the scares in this are like really violent and upsetting. Um, and then I also think that, kind of per usual, the dialogue can be pretty weird and alien feeling, and some of the performances can be pretty creaky, but some of them I was like very pleasantly surprised by. Um, and then that twist is, or not even twist, that like, here's why everything happened kind of moment is very wild, but I also appreciated kind of that it gave our main characters a bit of a happy ending. And I think overall, the flaws of it feel more... It just made it feel like a personal movie, even though it was kind of big and full of kind of firework bravura filmmaking and high concepts and stuff. It felt still very messy and idiosyncratic in a way I dug. Yeah, I... I don't know, we'll get to you in a second, but I just, I, I feel Damn like it. I read some, I read somewhere. <laughs> gotcha, Adam. <laughs> gotcha. Go to Old Beach. Um, So I read somewhere that like, uh, like Shyamalan stuff is getting a little more cynical, like his more recent stuff is more cynical. And I can sort of see that if you look at like the visit, like these grandparents yes. are not your grandparents. And like glass, like ha, the superhero you liked drowned in a puddle. You know, like I can see that. And yet at the same time, I still feel like those films have kind of an optimistic glean, just like this one does, where in the visit, you you can tell that like he really cares about those kids. Yeah. And I think Shyamalan for, you know, has been true for pretty much most of his, I would say all of his career. He's very good with working with child actors, which is not the easiest thing. And like the child actors here, like they feel like, actual children like an old when like the kid is like what is your name and what's your occupation like that feels like something like a real kid would do um the awkward rapping child in visit is feels like something like a kid would do like and then uh so you know and then with glass like yes it you know bruce willis drowns in a puddle but the whole the 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 catharsis of the film is that you know, we're going to show you some, this world has something more magical than you were led to believe. Like people tried to hide this from you and we're going to show you that this world has more to offer. So I still feel like even in the in the throes of the cynicism that these movies are offering, he still kind of comes out on the lighter side. Um, yeah, definitely. And to, to touch on the ending of the, vi- I, I think the visit ends not with like a final classic horror movie scare, but with like a heartfelt, tear streaked speech from Catherine Hahn talking about how she has to like move on and heal. And yeah, he's always been interested in what I might call like sap in a way that I dig. Yeah. So Adam, what did you think about old? 
I'm now 89 waiting for you <laughs> to call on me. My Anyone review of... know about the Brando Nicholson movie? <laughs> My review of Old Logging Out was Shyamalan's at it again. Because yeah. it was just very, it felt very M. Night Shyamalan-y. Um, but hearing you guys talk, I, and you know, we'll get into this when we get into his filmography, but I had stopped considering him a horror director. Like, I think that's how we got started, like the sixth ends. And then very, I think all of us are around the the age that we probably like perfectly latched on to the sixth sense and then eagerly awaited each next movie. So, you know, the trailer for signs, oh my God, it's going to be so scary. And it was scary. And it had those moments when like the alien comes out. Unbreakable was kind of pretty chilling. Uh, the village, I remember that trailer freaked me out. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's going to be so scary. And the village is kind of where it, people were like, uh. And then, like, it, he kind of stopped being that, like, spooky director. Um, and then I never saw The Visit. So, you know, I think Old old is a body horror film. And that's something that I wasn't expecting or prepared for. Um, and I think a lot of people might have kind of forgotten Shyamalan's origins. And, like, the guy is literally directing a horror TV show on Apple TV+. Plus. So I'm not saying that I am correct in forgetting it. Um but it was just surprising because I thought it was going to be kind of like a twisty, maybe like a morality play. Um, and there's some of that. And it, Greg, I think, as you said, it's correct. Like some of the dialogue is just very strange and stilted. The ending is baffling and silly. But I was compelled the whole time. Like even when, as Matt said, even when it's going off the rails, is damned entertaining. And uh, I had a good time with it. It's more disturbing than I was prepared for. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. a very upsetting film. Yeah, definitely, it, was a, definitely. it was a film that I, I went into him like, oh, I expect this to be kind of wistful. Like, like even though, yeah, something unexpected happening, but like I expected it to be like Shyamalan, like, you know, he has kids and like they grow up mm -hmm. so fast. And so like, what if that was your premise? Like my kids grew up too fast. Um, but really the film just moves at a breakneck pace where it's like, every time you're like, what's going to happen next? Shyamalan's like, I will tell you. And then that's like, there's no real lull in the action. Like every five minutes, something bonkers happens on Old Beach. And it's just, it almost to the point where like, I kind of wish the film had a longer prologue before it hit the inciting event, just so I could be a little more invested in the main family. Yeah. Like, I don't expect to, like, be invested in every single character and what they're about, because it's a, it's a fairly large cast, I would say, like, 10 people. But, like, I it wanted to... It gets small very quickly. It gets small quickly. <laughs> they whittle it down. I don't know what the name of Rufus Sewell's mother is, but she kicks the bucket pretty quick. <laughs> yes. Uh, and is never mentioned again. Um, but I would say, like, I, I feel like I wish had been a little bit more, like... Like, they, they hint that there's this marital strife between... Gail Garcia Bernal and Vicky Creeps. And then there is a, a medical condition and that's about it. And then like later that's, they reveal more about it, but I kind of wish I had known more about those stakes going yeah. in so that I was invested because really once you hit old beach, it's just nonstop. Something is always happening. You can't, you can't really wrap your mind around anything because like it doesn't matter who dies or how terribly it's on to the next and yeah. you just kind of have to sort of been like all right and and this is and and we're, i'm just talking about the death like there's something and again we're talking about spoilers so i'm just gonna mention it right now the a wild thing that i thought would get mentioned more on like social media over the weekend but people didn't seem to bring it up is that so <laughs> In the film, all the kids, like, they technically grow up and become teenagers very fast, but they still, it's unclear if they still have the minds of children. Like, there's this sort of illusion, like, oh, my thought, my head is filled with all these new thoughts. But, like, it doesn't, but at the same time, it's sort of like, no, they're still children in, inside. But anyway, two of those children have sex. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have a baby. And it's just like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you see them, like, holding hands, and now she's pregnant, and, like... It's to me, on the one hand, I love that the film is operating at that bonkers a level, but at the same time, it's like I I, I can't help but wonder like, is Shyamalan doing this for emotional impact, or is he like, why not? Here's a darkly comic laugh. And I just I don't even know because this film is like on that happening wavelength sometimes where it's like, are you trying to be campy? I genuinely can't tell, which is a problem. 
Yeah, in a lot of ways, it felt like a round two of The Happening, where it was like, not only a similarly sort of not quite human pitch for everyone to be performing at, except for like, you know, people like Rufus Sewell or, or Ken Lung or uh, I, I forget the actor's name, but Ken Lung's wife all felt pretty understated and human to me. Really? They felt, everyone... more, they felt more stilted to me. Like that first scene's like, my name is Jared. Like, like, like the way he's like accentuating his name to the point where it's like, are, are you giving me a clue to the, <laughs> I thought, I thought that was a, like, I thought that whole interaction at the beginning where she has a seizure, Rufus Duel comes over the Jared interaction that felt like a setup. Like, yeah, they I felt like it was staged. knew each other and we're doing this thing <laughs> that was going to pay off later, but no, that's just how <laughs> the scene played out. I think the direction was, was probably a little off in that scene, but yeah. you know, on to the next. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, inter- I interrupted you, and you were talking about shades of the happening. No, 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 that's okay. No, it yes, it felt like happening around two, with more interesting craft going on, and the body horror stuff. I never really like thought of this. It, it feels like in his latter period, which I might call the visit to now, mm-hmm. he is more explicitly interested in body horror stuff. Split has the stuff with James McAvoy, like his muscles like bulging out and like literally turning into a beast crawling around glass. We bring back Mr. Glass. The visit itself has like horrific images of like adult diapers and vomiting and aging too fast, which again comes back in this movie, but the sense of wistfulness, which you talked about, which like his early movies are nothing but wistful meditations on life and grief and moving on. They seem to be a little more clipped until the very end these days. Mm -hmm. Like at the very end when our two kids, now middle-aged people themselves, have kind of defeated the scientists who've been experimenting on people and they have this talk of like, ah, we're adults who think like kids and that's beautiful. And it's like, where did this tone come (laughs) from? (laughs) It's It's such a weird moment because it's not a catharsis to a certain kind of problem. You know, it's not, it, it doesn't answer a question really. The The science stuff like answers a plot question, like here's yeah. what was happening. But it's not like these two kids were like, man, I really like, I hope like at no point they're like, I hope I don't become like you when I'm older. Like, I hope I retain, you know, I'll always be a kid inside. Like there's nothing like that. It's not like big where it's like, I learned a lesson about the importance of childhood. It's just like, we, we, they basically like, we fucking survived old beach. <laughs> like that, that was sort of the resolution, but the film wants to be like, now there's also an um, end to the emotional arc. And I don't think it, it gets there in the same way that I would say, like, even though I don't necessarily agree with like, the way glass ends, I was like, this doesn't really work for me, but I think it's at least cohesive. I feel like it, it, yeah. it works for like, I don't, what he's going for doesn't hit me, but I am like, Oh, this makes sense for the film that you made. Um, whereas with old, it doesn't feel that way as much. Yeah. I the... tend to agree with that. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Greg, you go. <laughs> Thank you. I tend to agree with that. <laughs> Uh, intellectually, and yet I can't deny that, like, to me, Glass feels like a very intellectual movie. That, to me, might be his most cynical movie because it feels very pointedly, like, deconstructive about the superhero genre and, like, why we keep wanting that. Um, yeah, I guess because I guess that works for me because it's still un- yeah. it's still of a piece with Unbreakable, which was deconstructing the superhero genre anyway. True. You know, so to sort of, I don't know, it works as part of that. It's Although I will say it, there is a bitter note in Glass where he feels like, to go to your point about I would sort of pointedly against things, like it feels very pointedly against where superhero movies went to. So like, mm-hmm. instead of like, oh, there's going to be a big, ba- like like in the background, there's like news footage of like the big reactor or something. You're like, oh, that's where the climax will be. He's like, no, it's in a parking lot. <laughs> like, that's exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. And literally the newscaster presenting that says, this is going to be a marvel. <laughs> it's right. like, we, he's, yeah, we even though, it. even so, yeah, 
even though Glass feels intellectually like a nice bookend to Unbreakable, like a cohesive statement, you know, viscerally, like heart and gut level, I'll take old over Glass 10 times out of 10. I just had, it's just so, it's so buck wild. It's so purely designed to entertain the hell out of you. And even among this kind of breakneck nonstop pace, he does find moments of like quiet and beauty, like that two shot of Vicky and Gail, very old, just kind of looking at each other right before they die. Yeah. Was it like earned? I'm not sure, but it really affected me. I think, I think they earned it because I think it it goes to sort of like the argument that like the things that you fight about aren't as important in the long run. Yeah. So I think that like, and I'm with you, I would much rather watch old than glass because I think while glass holds together, as a film, it's largely just like people talking inside an asylum. It's not yep. that interesting to watch. Whereas like for a film that's set primarily on a beach, the camera work is really good. Like I'm with you, the camera work is really good in this. And yes, it's buck wild, but entertaining. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like I was entertained. I don't know if I necessarily want to revisit old anytime soon, but I was like, I was like, yes, tell me the next thing that's going to happen in old. Yeah. You couldn't really predict what was going to happen next, which was which was a lot of fun. I think old is a lot of fun. It has a lot of fun ideas. I think I'm with you. Like I found, so I also, Greg, I really connected to that scene. I thought that was a really beautiful scene. I think, you know, thematically, the film doesn't really come to anything. I think if it had, it, it maybe could have been that, that like, you know, put all these people in a situation in which aging is accelerated and what happens to your problems? What happens to your gripes? What happens to your daily struggles? Like, do they go away? Do they become more pronounced? That idea could have been really interesting. It doesn't really dig too deep in it because you've got to, you know, have Eliza Scanlon climb up a cliff and then fall down and then watch another lady break all of her bones. Um, That scene. Yeah. And that's why the (laughs) ending doesn't really work for me because I mean, it does, it, it answers a plot question for sure. But it's a question that the film doesn't raise. It's just kind of like in pharmaceutical industry, right? Yeah. And, which has which hadn't really been like the conflict in the first place. That's the thing. No. It's never, and it's a good twist because you don't see it coming. But it's not a good twist because it's not threaded anywhere in the movie, so it right. doesn't have any weight to it. Which, which, and that's the thing. Like that's how like what had me thinking back to Sixth Sense. Yep, is because when that twist comes, when that reveal comes. Like we all like now remember like oh, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. But like the reason he was dead the whole time is thematically he can't let go of, he has his own unfinished business. It's a film about grief and sort of mortality and ultimately acceptance. And you need those three things to sort of blend together. And so to me, the reason The Sixth Sense holds up is because it's not just about a twist or an answer. It's about like, to me, the scene that sticks with me is like when Bruce Willis like tells his wife as she sleeps, like you can let me go. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is where the film hits its emotional home run. Um, and I just feel like for old, it's like, and here's an answer. Yeah. <laughs> and the other part about the the twist of the sixth sense that like you, y'all are saying old really doesn't care about is that the twist for the sixth sense is right in front of his face the entire time. He figures out with Cole, Haley Joel Osment, the way we get rid of these ghosties is to finish their business. And Bruce Willis is a ghostie who needs to finish his business. <laughs> There's no like clean tracking of that. There's no attempt to make it that elegant in old. It's really just like, and it's again, it's fucking fun as hell. I had so much fun with this weird pharmaceutical fever dream, but <laughs> it, the elegance, the classiness, the emotional oh, no. taste. Yeah, it's I kind of miss that. And it's also a film that's constantly trying to answer things in a way that I feel like just let it go. Like, don't yeah. like don't worry about some guy on YouTube being like, thing is about all the don't make Like, don't worry about that because that guy's going to happen no matter what. So I don't need a, I don't need a scene like well why isn't our hair growing out or why are <laughs> yeah. our fingernails not like which this? doesn't make or sense why because did they in- say they say that their fingernails don't grow because they're dead cells but then the dead body decomposes quickly so like that doesn't that already doesn't track right That's or like point. you're like like ah it's rust which means it's poison it's like but 
you're not aging like the, the the rust doesn't kill you because like you age i don't know it's like a, a weird kind of like it's now poison if you cut yourself and it can travel through your bloodstream and it, like it seems like a, it doesn't see for Shyamalan, i'll back up for Shyamalan, old seems to be like you have wolverine powers kind of <laughs> <laughs> like it's like that's what's happening it's just everything is rapid which is not down to the wounds the stitching up themselves yeah. yes exactly um so I, I just feel like it's to me the film would have benefited like it's it's bonkers and it's wild and like on the one hand that makes it really fun but honestly a film that was smaller and scaled back i think would have been more powerful because instead of worrying about like well how will we explain x y and z it's like just the core of your film is that people are rapidly dying and they are aware of their mortality in a way that is confronting them like at a at a incredible pace what would they do and at that point to me like you know you may as well just end your film with the two middle-aged kids on the beach mm -hmm. like just end it there because like again like oh i made up an explanation to the made up thing like who cares the emotional core is those two characters and it's like coming to terms with coming to grips with their mortality and i think that's sad and it's ambiguous but i think it's at least lasting in a way that it's like well, trial 73 didn't work out. And then you, and then the Warren and Warren company, and then we called the cops and they all went to jail. And it's like, what, why? Like, how <laughs> they like latch on very quickly. He's like, you're a cop, right? And he gives him a notebook and he's like, this doesn't sound crazy at all. <laughs> doesn't sound <laughs> like, crazy. These people I are believe missing. this fully. I'm going to arrest everyone under the charges <laughs> that they were misusing Old Beach. <laughs> And then, like, well, dozens of hotel employees are like, what can we possibly do? We're not, you know, like, they outnumber everyone. They should could surely have, you know, taken care of it or something. But I agree. I think I, I think there's a better, more interesting, or I, I shouldn't say better. I think there's a more interesting version of this film that starts when they get on the beach and ends with the two middle-aged kids on the beach. Mm -hmm. So you narrow the focus of the story and you say, all right, I have to get the audience to care about these characters on the beach. I'm not going to have any kind of foreshadowing. And you kind of do kind of like the lost pilot, which like I think is one of the best pilots ever made that pilot gets to invest in everyone and you're dropped immediately in the action. You learn who people are through their actions. I think that would have been really interesting. Um, Cause when we get to that scene on the helicopter and he's like, how would you feel if your uh, like 56 year old nephew called you or like something about the ant? And I was like, surely that's not the last line of the movie. And then the camera looks at the sky. And, and the then the helicopter flies away. And Cause I was like, that's end. a really awkward line and it's not particularly funny or good. You almost like wonder if it's going to end with like a freeze frame, just like a... <laughs> we're all laughing, having fun. I mean, something we should note as well, which Knight told uh, Steve Weintraub, our boss on Collider in his interview, is that he has been self-financing all of his films since The Visit, all of his films and the TV show Serpent. So he maintains a pretty significant degree of creative control that also limits the budget a bit. Um, but he is paying for the films himself and the studio like universal or whatever is paying distribution rights uh so he's not really listening to notes very much <laughs> no no not in not in this well and that's the, i mean that's and that, honestly that's a hallmark of his career pretty much since lady of the water there's a whole book that talks about his basically his uh schism with disney he like yeah disney there's the book is called i believe the man who heard voices and it's from the perspective of this executive who was like working on Lady in the Water and sort of just sort of being like, this isn't, no. And he's like, well, I'm going to Warner Brothers. And like, that's, you know, that's why he stopped making movies at Disney. And like, like and then he's just started, and then like Warner Brothers had him for a little while. And, the, you know, the studio kind of started studio hopping. And I guess he's now found a good home at Universal. Yeah, he kind of fits into the Universal Blumhouse sort of mold of like, lots of creative control tiny budgets go nuts yeah. no exactly i think blumhouse kind of came along right at the right time for, yeah for Shyamalan. but it's interesting to hear that he f maintains so much control of his films that he to the point of him financing them because i w when you look at his career as a whole and when we were talking about like not trying to cater to the like youtube cinemasin sort of crowd a lot of his later period stuff feels to me like purposeful counter attacks. Yes. Like when I think of, you know, 
this doesn't make sense kind of like to its extreme being applied to Shyamalan. I think of signs. I think of the internet glomming onto why would they go to a planet that's mostly water as like proof that that movie is wrong. Right. Yeah. And I feel like since then he has been trying to run away from that kind of that kind of cleanness and elegantness and it's threaded throughout sort of twist in favor of hard fucking punches, you know? He's on he's on the defensive. I mean, exactly. that's the thing. He's he's on the defensive in such a way that like it and, and it's and it's again, this goes back to Lady in the Water. Yes. Um Oh, and you could argue it goes back to the village. The village, the script leaked out allegedly and had a different ending. And people were like, well, that ending is terrible. And like, so the movie <laughs> has a different ending. I don't know how much of that is true, but like apparently the the way the film was supposed to reveal that it was um, like in the present day, were just like two construction workers looking over and being like stupid fucking white people. And just like, that was, <laughs> that was, the, that was the end of the movie. And so I love that ending. <laughs> yes. And, but like, but it's part of the problem with like the, like I read the script and like, you know, when people are like this, I read the script and this is this and this, and people don't understand how something could play out in cinema. They just hear a story beat and then they like react against the story beat. That's kind of what happened there. The similar thing happened with uh, the ending of Terminator or Salvation, uh, but we won't, I won't digress too much. Oh man. I just had flashbacks to all the Terminator Salvation drama. <laughs> I know. Right. But we won't get into that other than to say like Shyamalan and then Lady in the Water you get him, there is a, the Bob Balaban character in Lady in the Water is openly like, I am going to attack critics now. I'm <laughs> yep. going to make a thing about critics in the middle of this movie. I'm just going to yep. lose all the tension, everything I'm building, just so I can do this one thing and then have my monster kill the critic. And it's just like, it it feels very, for a guy, and I've met Shyamalan. I interviewed him for the visit at Comic-Con. He was perfectly pleasant. I don't understand this need in his films. Like, why do you have to address things? I guess, I guess it's one thing if it's like glass where you can make the argument that like, I am just as unbreakable addressed the nature of comic books. I would want to make a film about addressing comic book movies 20 years later, but I would feel, I felt like, you know, a lot of, like to your point, Greg, a lot, there's a lot of counter punching from Shyamalan where it doesn't need to be. Yeah, and it's well, it's it's so interesting to kind of see the public, the critical reaction, sort of reclaim him and sort of start to, I don't know, quote unquote, love him again, but in a way that is suffused with, is this campy or is this not? So I wonder if he is aware of that reaction. I wonder if he's like leaning into it harder, and that's why old is as buck wild as it is. More than like any other kind of working director, he seems particularly aware of himself as a brand and how he is the, perceived. The only one other director I can think of like who's like that in such a public way and makes it part of their movies is Kevin Smith. Sure. That's yeah. the only other one. And they count both came up of the same time around the same time. Yep. You know, and this age of like the internet and comment boards and sort of you know, and just being aware of their own sort of, and also being very successful with their, an early film out the gate. Like they were yeah. not, it's not like, um, I mean, to, I guess the, the comparison I pull would be maybe like Soderbergh. Soderbergh did have success out the gate with sex lies and videotapes, but then he kind of went back into the trenches and like made a lot of like personal stuff that didn't connect or, you know, just kind of digging through it and then sort of came out on the other side. Um, whereas Shyamalan like had these dizzying, like the, I mean, no one really saw wide awake or, yeah. um, praying. They kind of, they, they filmed wide awake and then like released it maybe like three or four years later, something like right. that. I think right before Sixth Sense was about to come out. Right. So they didn't like the, no, for all intents and purposes, Sixth Sense may as well have been Shyamalan's debut film. Yeah. And it it was a massive worldwide success, a phenomenon. I think he got an Oscar nomination for, I think, best director or certainly best screenplay. Um, and then, you know, then, you know, Disney moved like, we want your next film. We'll pay you whatever you want. And then like his own branding, like there was a Time magazine cover or news. It was, I think it was Time. It was like the next Spielberg yeah. question mark. 
And I, and I think like, you know, there was a, there's a bit of an Icarus thing, you know, you fly too close to the sun and people like when you get to the village and people are kind of ready to retaliate, especially with the village, which is a film I need to revisit. Cause I, I remember loving like the first two acts of the village. And then like my problem with the village isn't even so much. It's just the ending. It's like the way he explains it the way the director of the film literally plays a character very true who has to explain everything it's like this doesn't seem like the most elegant way to do this <laughs> um to explain and again it goes back to a problem that we're talking about with old like you're explaining that it's like well why are there no airplanes overhead well this character will explain to you why there are no airplanes overhead it, it's things like that and it's like you don't do you need this do you need this here I yeah love he, i love the village Fuck as well Mario. And I'm not saying that. Excuse me. I just said I agreed with you. <laughs> I Greg is on my on my side now. Okay. okay. I love the village. I think the twist ending works. He's really trying to. Mr. Shalman's trying to have it all, right? Mm. He's trying to hit us in the heart. He he's trying to. For me, the like, why are there no airplanes? Let's explain why. He's trying to like have fun on a very intellectual clever like isn't this interesting kind of level and those two ways of satisfying things brain stuff and heart stuff are so like diametrically opposed and when he's good at fusing them he's among the best that's working today and when he's a little creaky it really feels one of them feels forced both of them feel forced they feel disjointed but like I have to admire somebody who's I'd rather admire an Icarus figure, somebody who's just like, I got to fucking fly to the sun as quickly as I can, rather than somebody who's like, nah, I'm fine just being on the ground and making a boring movie, you know? Yeah. A Robert Schwenke type turning out <laughs> Snake Eyes. Exactly. Origin. I haven't seen Snake Eyes yet, but yes, exactly. But Robert Schwenke, director of Rest in Peace Department uh, <laughs> and, and Allegiant Part One, never to have Oh my God. R.I.P.D. What a movie. Whew. Yes. There I is a, it on quiet... a plane and wanted to leave. <laughs> There's a quiet <laughs> elegance in The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs and even The Village, I think. And The Village, yeah. Yeah, where, as you say, Greg, like it's the smart stuff and the heart stuff. The heart stuff is very much, he's very in tune with the humanistic points of those films. I think the problem with The Village is that it was marketed as the guy who makes twist endings and everyone was just waiting for the twist. Yeah. Because also that whole setup is like, what is the monster in the woods? Versus right. signs, like, you know, it's aliens, but like, what's going to happen? And The Village is like, what is the thing? Like, I need to know what it is. Same with Unbreakable. It's like, is he or is he not? You have a, like a multiple choice in Unbreakable and Signs, whereas The Village is this open-ended question. And so I think people were fixated on that and then they get to the ending and it's not as elegantly explained as it could have been. Um, but going back and rewatching that, which I did a couple of years ago to write about it, um, it's so like humanistic. Like it's this very Absolutely. interesting moral question of what these people did and why they did it and why they you know, created the monster in the woods and all that stuff. <laughs> Uh, also just like, as you mentioned in your article, Greg, just impeccably shot by Roger Deakins. I wish that Shyamalan and Roger Deakins would work together again. Cause Shyamalan loves to like, let the scene play out. He loves long yeah. like, Spielberg wonders essentially, but like where he's sometimes where he's not in old, he's always moving the camera, but in some of them, he's not moving the camera and it's just very quiet, very beautiful frames. And then I think it was the response to the village. It must have been that made him so angry. And yes, like you it said, was. Which is why, it, yeah, which gets you to Lady in the Water. But at and the same time, I don't time, even know what the happening is. I mean, the, the happening, happening is is bonkers town. The happening is one of the best bad movies ever made. I love its pieces. <laughs> the weird thing about the Lady in the Water is that yes, it is it is clearly born from so much anger and so much. You think you're so smart. I'll have a guy explain how he's the smartest critic in the world and then he gets fucked up. But it's all trying to be embedded in a story that literally comes from like a heartfelt, sweet childhood yeah. bedtime yes. story. Yes. <laughs> and he just cannot fuse it all together. It's he so just frustrating. Fails. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you've also got like boring. an amazing. It's the first of his films that's like boring to me, honestly. Um, I, I was going to say, I really like Giamatti's performance in it. And. I to me that film it works in fits and starts you mm -hmm. know but I wasn't bored by it I'm more and then like 
the, the film of his that, and I, I guess, you know, we were kind of already there. We're going through this, his filmography. We're just jumping around a little <laughs> bit. Uh, the film of his that really just irks me is Last Airbender, just because it's such a softball down the middle of an adaptation. Like I've, as some, and I'm not someone who's like, you have to respect the show and everything in the show, but like the show is very, very simple, like hero's journey stuff. Like it's, it, it's hard to mess it up and he messed it up. And it bothers me because it's like, this could have been like it. And look, the animated show is always there and it doesn't harm the animated show. But if we were going to do like a live action version, it could have been really cool and exciting. And they just, he so thoroughly bungled it in such a multitude of ways that it felt kind of like, you know, he made, I asked, I asked him about it. He's like, I basically made it because my kids were fans of it, which is fine, I guess. But like a lot of people are fans of it. And it feels sort of callous in its disregard for why it, for why the show works. Um, there just wasn't, a, you can tell it's a, it feels almost mercenary. Like, okay, I'll do a summer tentpole blockbuster. That's not mine. And I'll just make it, you know, and, and move on. And it, and, it, and I think it, and it, and it's, it's a bummer. Mm-hmm. That movie is a huge bummer. There's pretty much nothing like you say, it really doesn't feel like him. It feels pretty obviously cut and paste together. Um, that's the only movie of his where I don't feel him at all. Even like his other attempt at a big budget blockbuster, not entirely from him, After Earth, which mm-hmm. a lot of people just throw in the garbage. I still feel, quote unquote, M. Night Shyamalan embedded in there in ways that i find a little bit interesting to recognize. there there's a bit of Shyamalan in there i feel like and maybe it's just because like on its press tour it he kind of like stepped the fuck back it was all it was like the will smith and and jaden smith show like in terms probably of in the promotion at, vehicle at, probably as like a counterattack because by that point his name right dredged, dredged up so much I, disrespect one of my most vivid comic-con memories was so sometimes in comic-con they have these blocks of time where they don't have a panel but they need to fill time so they do this they have this thing called like trailer park or whatever and they just show a bunch of trailers to the people in the room and it's it's a time where people can like go to the bathroom and get some food or whatever and then everyone in the room just watches trailers fine um one of the trailers they showed was for a movie he didn't make but produced which was devil. you're talking about devil yes and when his name came up from the from yep. producer M Night Shyamalan, a room of six thousand people just booed lustily. He didn't even direct, and they, they hadn't seen it. They're just like boo, because like by that point, it was like his like you're right. His name was was mud, and it really took like the visit and and split yes. to kind of revive it. Yeah, and it's so. I don't know. I'm trying to like recall if there are any other directors who've kind of had as deep a fall and rise that is so deeply in dialogue with the audience's perception of them. Mm. I feel like there's a version where he just doesn't pay attention to any of that. And then maybe his films feel a little more in that slower, thicker, six cents to signs to village aim. But instead he like, he, you know, he goes super, he's Vegeta going super Saiyan. You all hate me. I'm going to be the fastest, most powerful filmmaker ever. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. And there are filmmakers that are like aware of their rep and they lean into it more. Mm. Like when I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah. and Tarantino is shoving those feet right yeah, into that's the a camera. Good point. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I do like feet. Like, yes, we know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> You know, thank but you. <laughs> thank you, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess. Um, but it's, I, I'm trying to think of anyone else. Like, even like Wes Anderson, like Wes Anderson just doesn't seem to even register it. He doesn't just give like, a fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like going to Wes Anderson, my Wes Anderson, and just well, go on about my business. It's because for whatever reason, nobody really seems to like knock him for being Wes Anderson. Well, I think he's just like, I mean, they knock him, but like they knock his style. And I think his sort of, he had two choices, which was, okay, well, I'm going to try to do something completely different, or I'm just going to accept that this is how I make movies and I'm going to keep doing it. And he chose the latter. And I think to his, you know, I think his, his filmography is the better for it. I don't think like every film is a home run, but like it would have been very easy after like, 
you know, Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic to be like, like, well, I'm not going to make movies like that anymore. And I think really what he did was, is he sort of figured out narratively, he's like, I need to find new stories because a lot of his earlier yeah. films are bad dad films. Yeah. But by the time you get to like Grand Budapest, he's not doing that anymore. But his like style is still like very much Wes Anderson, but he's thinking about different things now. And I think that makes him a, a more interesting filmmaker. I think it's just embracing the idea that I no one makes movies like me, so I will continue making yeah. movies. Right. And that's what I saw some reactions to the French Dispatch where they were like, it's so Wes Anderson y. And I was like, who gives a shit? Like, literally, no one else does what he does. No one can do it as well as he does. So just let him keep doing it. You get mm -hmm. one every three or four years. I, yeah. I, when and also, like, it's such a weird thing. It's like, well, identif I identify the thing. This orange tastes too much like an orange. Well then, don't eat the orange, my dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like it's gonna, like it says what it says on the tin. But in some ways, I think Greg, you're right. Like, if Shyamalan had kind of been able to ignore the critics and do that, which I think was impossible. I think at that point, yeah. at that point, it's hard to like explain to people what the entertainment world was like in the early 2000s and like mid 2000s. But like, his name was kind of like a rock star, and like his name was he, the absolutely. brand. Absolutely, he was a. I mean, he had an American Express commercial. <laughs> he had true. an American Express commercial. So did Wes Anderson. Right. Yeah. But like, yeah. like I remember Shyamalan so vi vividly because his is like, I'm dreaming. Like I'm basically like, yeah. I'm in a cafe and I'm busy yeah. imagining worlds. Holy and then shit. The, and, guys... then the, and the waitress brings him his check and he's like annoyed that she interrupted him and he pays with his American Express card. Anyway, Do you remember was... the, um, speaking of his brand in the 2000s, the sci-fi channel like fake oh, documentary yes. they made about I him. I do like the hidden world of M Night Shyamalan or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they like tried to imply that he had like this dark, tortured past. And I think there's a point in it where he's like, "You're not making you. You can't release this fucking documentary about me or shit like that." It's so like he's so concerned with his own image and legacy and mythology and to to kind of tie that into the orange tastes too much like an orange uh, metaphor. With Shyamalan, I always want to go see an M. Night Shyamalan movie, but maybe it's a little less... It's a little more like a bag of trail mix, where like yeah. every every handful you take is going to be a little bit different, and sometimes it's nothing but walnuts. But then sometimes it's this perfect blend of raisins and chocolate, and now I just want trail mix. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, no, I think I you're right. Yeah, sometimes, you know, he, what he's working is like it hits the right mix, but other times, you know, you go full Shyamalan and, you know, <laughs> Can't go back. It, it doesn't it doesn't quite <laughs> cohere. Well, and I'm but I, it's still fucking fun. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I like where he is now. So like The Last Airbender is a movie made by a filmmaker who's on the ropes. He's like, fine, I'll make it. Is it Disney? Did Disney release? that? No, Paramount. it's Paramount. Paramount. Okay. Yeah, but Nickelodeon it's like, it's, Paramount. Yeah. Like that's essentially a director for hire job. And even though he wrote and directed it, it it's like, okay, I'll take this. Because like nothing in his previous career suggested that. And he tried rebranding with the happening because it was like the first R-rated movie from Mr. Right. Shyamalan. It was like it's gonna be extreme. So he could have just gone that route where he just became a director for hire. I kind of like that he leaned into, I suppose it was the one-two punch of Last Airbender and After Earth. Even Will Smith has said that After Earth made him completely change how he approaches his career because he thought he was on top of the world and that like, you know, his name would sell everything. And that movie was all him and it didn't do shit. And, um, and yet it kind of wasn't all him because he like, it's really- It's mostly Jaden, yeah. It's mostly yeah. Jaden in the woods with like Will Smith sitting in a spaceship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do this now. Do that now. <laughs> so I like that he's like, all right, I'm going to self-finance. I'm going to tell original stories that are my own. Uh, and they will be... Although old, old is based bag. on a graphic novel. That's right. That's right. Um, but like, it's this grab bag of, you know, a found footage Blumhouse movie and a long-awaited sequel to Unbreakable. And it's like that, a, that you don't know is a sequel until the last yes. minute. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the best and a twist body of all. horror movie, and I really want to check out Servant. I know Haley watches Servant, and I've heard good things about it. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd be curious to poke my head into that one. I heard, you know, he did Wayward Pines a little bit, uh, which we talked about before we started recording, but none of us have seen it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm glad that he's doing this, and he's not like a Robert Schwinke where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, your name is kind of lost. Or, or yeah, like I mean, there are directors like, oh, you used to make interesting movies, and now you don't make interesting movies anymore. Yeah. And like, yeah. honestly, 
like again old has its issues but i like like i was entertained and if you're like that's the thing he's self-financing it this is money in his pocket so if he's like yeah i'll make low budget films that like are reliant on my strength as a director and a writer and we're just going to go from there i'm like make your movies my dude like i i would happily like at the end of the day like yes old is based on a graphic novel but it's not like ah the old franchise he's tackling the old no it's like it came from source material but ultimately it's still in the same bag as like the visit and split and glass like it's it's basically like these smaller films that he has control over and i'm like good for you go for it you know i i I have no issue with that because to me like if the if if it fails what what has really been lost here you know and honestly i think shaman has hit his nader when you make like a big expensive tentpole like last airbender and it flops horribly and you don't you you don't win over anyone you don't win over people who didn't (laughs) know what last airbender was and you certainly don't win win over the people that did so i i feel like he's in a good place right now even if there's still a bit of a chip on his shoulder He's in a great place of like, he's almost making the chip work against him a little bit. He's almost like he's he's a faster, fleeter, like he's he's rope-a-doping us a little bit. He's like <laughs> he's allowed everyone to pummel him to death, and now he's flexing hard. And there seems to be an appetite for him in this weird border. Parts of old felt like borderline experimental in its constructions, mm-hmm. and. Everybody is talking about old. Nobody's talking about Snake Eyes. It's the number one movie in America. Twitter is having a blast with it. He's like, he's having fun again. Or yeah. maybe not even again. His, maybe he's having fun for the first time. And that's like think, a, cool, a cool place to be. I think, there's free, I think there's more freedom for him now. Now that he's been around for a couple decades. And he doesn't have to worry about like, oh, am I going to inherit the mantle of the next Spielberg? You know, oh, don't worry about that. Just be M. Night Shyamalan. And exactly. He's more than enough. Exactly. Josh Trank has that handled. It's fine. Yeah. Josh Trank or uh, <laughs> Colin Trevorrow will be our next Spielberg. <laughs> uh, by, by the way, did, did, I, I, I probably should ask you off the air, but Adam, did you finally see the Book of Henry? Because didn't it come to HBO Max? Oh, it did. I still have not seen the Book of Henry. We got to do a Book of Henry episode <laughs> or something. It's so. I mean, I know wild. what happens in it. I cannot imagine watching that happen. Um, but yeah, I'll need to give it a whirl. Time has not been on my side lately, but mm. sounds like apropos. it's apropos. Apropos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, um, let's let's move into. Unless there's anything more to say about Shyamalan, I think we ended on a pretty. Oh, pretty good I spot. I. I I could spend I could spend the rest of my life compressed into the next whatever talking about Shyamalan. There's just too much. There's too, too much. much. About it. So I did better... want to shout out Greg ranked all of his films, and you can read that on Collider. Yes. Uh, if not for the ranking, mostly for his thoughtful examination of all of these films that we talked about. Yes. Oh, you thank you. Check Thanks. That out. Thanks. Um, and and see that... why he decided to put the happening at number one. I don't know why he did that. But, <laughs> you can go and find out. I explain it. Like a Shyamalan twist, perfectly. <laughs> no plot holes. Well, with that, uh, let's move on to recently watched. Uh, Greg, what have you seen lately that you'd like to talk about? Sure. This weekend, I I'd been wanting to watch it when it came out. I, I think I kind of missed it in the theaters, but so I watched it on demand. I finally watched Werewolves Within, mm. which is a fun, really fun, really charming horror comedy. Um, starring Sam Richardson and Milana Weintraub and a really good ensemble cast. It's like the video game it comes from. Uh, The high concept pitch of it is like closed room whodunit meets werewolf. So like a werewolf is attacking this small town. Everyone suspects each other. It kind of devolves into a closed room... uh, Parts of it reminded me of The Thing, where everyone's like at each other's throats, paranoia takes over. On top of this all, it's really funny, it's really charming, it's very snappily shot and edited in a way that kind of made me gave me some Edgar Wright vibes. And the most surprising part of this is that it's ending, it's Shyamalan moment, if you will. Without spoiling anything, it's ending really threw me for a loop. It really surprised me. It felt like it was making a pointed statement that I didn't know it was making until it made it. And then I was like, oh, oh, it was making this statement the whole time. 
and it it's hard cut to credits like kind of floored me so werewolves within huge crowd pleaser i wish i could have seen it with a packed house but i had i had a blast nice uh yeah that one's definitely on my list of, of films to see i know i still have not seen that uh adam what have you seen lately that you'd like to talk about um, well, here in Tulsa, they had a, a film festival here a couple of weeks ago, and I got to moderate a Q&A with a filmmaker for this documentary called Holy Frit, which played at Slamdance this year. Uh, and I really liked the film. It's So it's a documentary about this stained glass artist living in L.A. who wins a bid to construct and design the largest stained glass painting ever for a mega church in kansas they win the bid and he's like i don't know how to do this it's impossible <laughs> with the way that stained glass works it is impossible to make it this big and like it fits on a football field it's just this enormous structure <laughs> uh and so he calls in this kind of renowned stained glass artist uh named narcissus which is very funny uh <laughs> who has this like huge ego but it has this technique called using frit which is you take a bunch of like crushed up glass and you do it in the colors and you throw it on and then you bake it that way and that's how you can get colors to like intermesh because the way stained glass works is like each panel has to be one color and then you use lead to like combine it and if it was all lead it would fall down um so it's this three-year journey of them trying to and him in this small like art studio in la trying to build this thing that is nearly impossible for this mega church um but it also is this really between him and this guy narcissus who's like this renowned artist this kind of interesting uh insight into like what it takes to be an artist because narcissus is kind of like you should have no weekends you should have no family life you should dedicate your life to this piece of art because it will last forever and the other guy is like, you know, if it sucks, it sucks. And so, like, these two conflicting <laughs> ideas of art is like, the I will do my is best. Me. Yeah. <laughs> like, sucks. I will do my best. But if it sucks, you know, it sucks. Um, and then you're like, you know, will they ever do it? And then also the moral question of like, this church is spending $90 million on this piece of art. Should they spend it in other ways? Yeah. Like, is it is it moral for them to be spending this much money on, you know, this huge piece with the piece itself is kind of funny because it's largely pretty but like they want to get all of these faces in it so you have like nelson mandela and martin luther king jr and billy graham and so it's just this kind of like mishmash Whoa. on the edges uh and the artist you know having to but then also you know stained glass is not an art form like painting where you are literally like getting what you want like they're doing jesus's face and like they have to get it right but it also would there's a bit of luck involved in like how you're doing it. You don't know what's going to look like until it comes out. Um, so it's really fascinating. I'm not necessarily sure where you can watch it right now. It's in the process of being shown at festivals and I'm sure it will uh, be released somehow. Uh, but yeah, it's called Holy Frit. It's really interesting. Uh, and I learned a lot about stained glass. I, I, that sounds like very much my jam. Yeah. It's like really fun. It seemed like it honestly reminded me of like the kinds of docs we see at Sundance and we're nice. like, Oh, that was cool. Yeah, Netflix, if you're listening, pick this stock up. I, I, I need to watch it right now. That's really interesting. That's very cool. Um, yeah, so for me, I watched a documentary that a lot of people have been talking about. And so my wife and I watched Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage, which is part of a new music box docu-series on HBO Max. It's basically like Bill, it's Bill Simmons doing this. It's basically like what he did for 30 for 30 he's doing now for like music. So instead of sports documentaries, it's music documentaries under this banner that Ringer Films is putting out. And uh, I didn't know about, about Woodstock 99, which is weird because I was a teenage boy and it's like, these are the bands that were marketed to me um, at the time to come, you know, and I guess to back up, like there's Woodstock in uh, 69, which is like this famous festival that has kind of been memory hold a bit, not the festival, but it's darker aspects. And now it's just remembered as sort of this peace love thing. And then in Woodstock 94, it was it was this really nice festival, sort of a the, the intergenerational festival where people from 69 were able to bring their kids and it rained a lot, but people played in the mud and it, and it worked out really well, so well that they're like, well, let's do this again in, in 99. And in it, in this documentary, which is a feature length documentary, like, yes, it's technically an episode of a docuseries, but it's an hour and 50 minutes. It's a full length film. 
is that you get to see like how not just that it was a badly run festival like the fact that they had this on a military base so everyone's on asphalt it's the middle of summer it's hot water costs four dollars a bottle yes there's free water but people are like bathing in it and there's like you know everything it's just very poorly done it seems they chose this airbase because it had barbed wire fencing which would mean they wouldn't lose money on people hopping the gate like gate crashers essentially so that was their main concern and you can just sort of see the timeline of how things got worse and worse and worse leading to these you know sexual assaults and death and fires and it's just really horrifying stuff that in its own way is sort of like a harbinger of where we are now with sort of this white boy rage that feels entitled to everything but also angry at everything at the same time and to the point like especially in 99 it's like what the fuck are you so mad about it's so baffling because it's like 9-11 hasn't happened yet the economic crash hasn't happened yet all you're kind of worried about is y2k which you don't even really like it's just a media hype narrative why are you so angry like you know and why are bands like limp biscuit and like kid rock why are they so popular like what are they speaking to and what is feeding this and it's a really fascinating documentary that i think like is wise enough to be like yeah limp biscuit is shit but like a lot of the like blame here can go to like the organizers like john sure who are who comes off as a full-blown rape apologist mm-hmm. um it's it's a really it, it was the kind of documentary like my wife and i were like pausing it every five minutes to like talk about at some aspect wow yeah um, and so it's really good, really thoughtful, great interviews with like insightful people like um, Maureen Callahan and Wesley Morris and Dave Holmes, like just really sharp, insightful people uh, analyzing this event. There's a wealth of footage that they had. Uh, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's on HBO Max uh, is Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage. Yeah, because of your letterbox review, Sam and I watched it yesterday. Because <laughs> we both watched cool. Woodstock '99. I don't know, like I was glued to MTV at that time, and mm. MTV had a whole thing about it. And I remember the fires. I remember MTV having to evacuate. Also, like let it be known, Lip Bizkit figures prominently in this documentary. If that appeals to you in any way, <laughs> it's very funny. But like, it, as you say, like it also delves into like the evolution of music at that time and how like new metal was all the rage and how like Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and Pearl Jam had kind of sen- signaled a more progressive version of rock that was happening in the early nineties. There was replacing like the misogyny of like hair metal and stuff like that. And then Kurt Cobain dies and it's replaced by this rage. So you get Limp Bizkit, you get uh, Metallica, Rage Against the Machine, which Rage Against the Machine obviously is like a political band, but like this kind of new metal where they're infusing, or like most prominently Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit, where they're infusing rap with rock, but like they're losing everything that makes rap interesting and keeping, I think someone says in the documentary, they lose like the politics and um, all of that stuff, but they keep the misogyny and the like homophobia. And it just is this, you know, the footage of Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit on stage <laughs> makes you embarrassed to uh, have lived through that era. Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating and how they just like, they just picked three so that you have like Limp Bizkit and you have Metallica and uh, then you have like Jewel on stage and they didn't think that maybe the audience who came to see these new metal bands would be angry that Jewel was on stage <laughs> or like not vibing oh, with man. what Jewel was putting out there it's yeah like it it does seem like the promoters just fucked up like hugely but i you know i was fascinated because i remember watching it it was a like a it was like immortalized on mtv and john sure that asshole is like blaming mtv the whole time like oh mtv gave us bad he just made it look bad with all the things that were happening it's it's, he's essentially saying fake news without saying fake news but yeah come on yeah yeah there's also like police reports (laughs) yeah um it's great. So, I really liked it. Yeah, it's a it's a really powerful uh, yeah, documentary. I, got, I gotta watch it. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I want to hear your thoughts on it too, because it's also the footage is great. Uh, I mean, uh, like the they show pretty much all of Alanis Morissette singing a song. And I'm like, this is great. I remember this. And then you know, a biscuit. You're like, ah, yeah. I, I could deal without this. <laughs> oh, good. There's a reason this band hasn't been remembered fondly. Um, <laughs> but, anyway, but yeah, it's a great documentary. 
well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Greg, where can we find you on Twitter? You can give me a follow at Smith L. Greg. And Adam, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on the beach where people get old. And then on Twitter, you can find me at Adam Chitwood. I regret to inform you that Adam is now a bag of bones. <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at Matt Gold. I don't know how he aged into a bag. A bag <laughs> like came out from under his skin and enclosed him. That was weird yeah, to watch. It was always yeah. there. Well, thankfully, there's a, the bag comes from the pharmaceutical company. They were testing a new bag product. <laughs> how dare they? And there's the tie-in. <laughs> Uh, and you can follow me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.